regarding the question of whether it's considered appropriate for a person to buy life insurance policies. Why yes, why not? Much discussion of the life insurance policy issue has to do with the question of faith and bitachon and hishtadlus and working and all that kind of thing. But I know a certain very a person, a Rosh Hashiva, as a matter of fact, very Rosh Hashiva many years ago, who declined to have a life insurance policy. Why? With the following cheshmer. We all know, Pesach says, Mishpatei Hashem emes tzadku yachdov. The uh, judgments of God are righteous, are truthful. He judges things, everything together. In other words, he takes everything into account, into consideration. Therefore, unlike a human court, which will sentence, nowadays I guess they start taking other factors in it, but Susan Smith to the electric chair, even though her parents and her whatever is going to suffer as a result, that's the way courts used to work, Hashem generally takes into account that all the people that are associated with the person who's going to suffer, do they deserve their suffering? <clears throat> do they commit enough sins to suffer the loss of, let's say, the breadwinner, to suffer the loss of a parent, a child? That means Hashem has to take all things into account. Based on this principle, I think it's Revoya Lapian that says that before Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, when we come to Din, we should, he, he advises people to try making more friends in general and to be together the sense of togetherness and being with people and friendship will be such that as a result of the fact that someone else who may needlessly suffer, when you suffer, Hashem will stave off your punishment because of somebody else. So I know this Rosh Shiva, he didn't want to have a life insurance policy because he said, hey, this way he could, you know, uh, I mean, I guess there's two ways of looking at it. On the one hand, if there's no life insurance policy and he suffers, you know, then his his wife and children won't have the breadwinner. I don't know how much Rosh Hashim's make exactly, but but uh, they, they'll be missing their breadwinner. And as a result, if they don't deserve the loss of the father and, and husband in the household, Hashem will keep him alive somewhat longer. I don't know how much longer, but somewhat longer at least. It'll keep him alive a little bit longer. I guess the reverse is true also. You put on a good life insurance policy. They might be better off with the uh, life insurance policy than the person. So there'll be a reason, hey, you know, they don't lose anything. If anything they gain, they're going to make a million bucks this way. And uh, Hashem will take them away even quicker. So we had this discussion. An anecdotal story how um, Rameir Shapiro who started, of course, the Dafyomi and he was the uh, founder of Chachmei Lublin, one of the greatest yeshivas as well as one of the most beautiful yeshivas was, was in tremendous debt and the debt was only paid off from his life insurance policy that's what this fellow told me that the life insurance policy was paid off the debt so it made me start thinking and I asked the question where in this week's parsha is this particular issue discussed this issue exactly where is it discussed in this week's parsha Take the vengeance of the Jewish people against the Midianites. Afterwards you will be gathered to your people. What's the connection? Hashem already earlier told Moshe that you're going to be dying soon or go up on Har Nevo and look out at the land and afterwards you're going to die like Aaron. Hashem already said in last week's parsha. 
what this, what's this repetition here? Take vengeance against the Midianites, and afterwards you'll be uh, gathered to your people. Comments on this the Medush, and the Yalkut Shimoni says it even clearer. Rashi already brings this down. Anybody who learned Rashi in this week's parsha already should know it. But Rashi already says it. Uh, although he says it rather briefly and more vaguely, but the Medrash Rabbah and the Yalkut Shimoni elaborates even to a greater degree where it says, hey, if Moshe wanted to go to Barbados for the next 20 years, he wouldn't have died. He doesn't say Barbados in the Yalkut Shimoni. It basically says Moshe could have decided to live another 10, 20, 30 years by just being a little bit lax in doing this mitzvah because Hashem sort of said, you know what? Moshe, you got one last job. And until you do that job, you're not going to die. Once you do that job, this is your last mission in life. Afterwards, you're going to immediately die. So it's like the guy that says, you know, uh, I've been late to everything else in my life. I might as well be late to my funeral. So, uh, you know, you haven't been... Uh, you got a mission. You got a certain amount of things to do in your life. Do it slow. You know, what's the rush? What's the rush? Condensing all the things that have to be accomplished. And most of us don't know what it is that we have to do. Maybe it's doing nothing is what we have to do when Hashem takes us away. But here Hashem clearly says to Moshe that your death is dependent on the accomplishment of this mission. You accomplish this mission, job well done, goodbye, you're dead. But um, Rashi brings it down. As a matter of fact, based on this, we see an understanding in Pasuk Hay of a very strange grammatical usage of the word. That 1,000 per tribe were supposed to be used as soldiers drafted into the army. And Moshe gathers 12,000, so it says, Vayimosu, and it was handed over. As if they were like reluctantly handed over. Vayimosu. Not Vayimosu, and not that they did it willingly or gladly, but Vayimosu. It was handed over, 12,000 Jews. So the grammatical usage of the word means that they reluctantly went to war because they said, hey, Right, the Numashu was going to die, so they said, well, what, what are we in a rush to do this war against the Midianites? We don't need it. I mean, it's not like we're, we're hot to do the war or that we're doing it in self-defense. It's, it's a mitzvah. So you know what? Someone tells you, you know, do this mitzvah and afterwards you're going to die. Or afterwards you're going to lose uh, your leader, you're going to lose a parent, you're going to lose Moshe Rabbeinu. You're going to lose your fortune. Right, so what's the rush? You know, can wait till the 21st century till we get around to doing this mitzvah. There's, there's a lot of mitzvahs that people don't do right away. Getting married. You're supposed to get married at 18. You know, people push it off. It's a mitzvah. What's the rush? You know, some people view it as a death sentence as well. And as a result, they try to push it off. It's a mitzvah. They could have appointed a committee to study it. Right, to study it and come back next year. <laughs> Notice though Moshe's reaction himself. With zeal, with vigor, with Islamists, with, you know, to do it quickly, to do it, to do it with Jesus. Moshe Rabbeinu's reaction was, it's a mitzvah, it has to be done, we got to do it right away. In other words, Moshe's reaction was, hey, it's a mitzvah, it has to be done. I'm not interested in my personal welfare, but this again is Moshe Rabbeinu thinking in terms of, what am I? I'm nothing. It's what God needs and what God wants in the world. And therefore, if this is what I'm here for, and I accomplish my mission, fine, I'll gladly take it. I'm not going to try to prolong the prolong life, prolong the agony, so to speak. For what? For what purpose? I was told you the story <coughs> of uh, when the Asrub Zusha he had an opportunity to change places, to exchange places with Avram Avinu. 
at the press of a button, would you? Stanley Wasserman. Press a button, and Avram becomes Stanley Wasserman, and Stanley Wasserman becomes Avram Ovinu. Would you press the button? No. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> but you don't deserve it. This should work differently. Most people say, oh, of course. No, 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 no. I'm saying you'd be him. So he says, so what? What does God gain from it? This still becomes only one Reb and one Avram Avinu. Nothing changes. What's the point? If I press the button, I'll become Avram Avinu and he'll become Reb Zushin. I mean, what is, what is HaKadosh Baruch who gained from it? To him it's all the same. There's still one Avram and one, one Zushin. What's the point? It's a question of me personally. Moshe Rabbeinu says, this is a mitzvah that has to be done. It's irrespective of, oh, I could schlep out my life, I could go to vacation for a few years, then I'll come back and then I'll do the mitzvah. So, we see over here that, that this kind of a cheshben has to be put into this kind of focus as well. That's an aside. Why is it though? Interesting vort here. If you look on the second page, why is it that, that Moshe Rabbeinu, his death was dependent on this as being the final act? I mean, this seems to be a rather strange aspect of, you know, Moshe's life was so full and was involved in so many different things and he had so many missions and so many things to perform on behalf of Kali Yisrael. What, I mean, taking vengeance against the Midianites, that's going to be the final act, though. That's the, uh, what do you call it, the climax, the curtains are going to come down on Moshe's life. This is the grand finale of Moshe's life to be in charge of the destruction of Midian. Why Midian, by the way? Why was Midian the... Um, the object of the vengeance rather than let's say Moab after all it says that they that they um, um, committed adultery with the daughters of Moab where did Midian, Midian come in so we know that Midian also joined into it there are two basic reasons brought down one Rashi, Rashi brings down yeah what's Ru- the Ru- 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 uh, that's the third reason also there are three basic reasons one is is because of Rus her marriage still kept them going yeah, they attacked yeah the Moabites were doing it somewhat out of fear and self-defense, or at least they perceived it as self-defense. So they were scared of the Jews, so they, they used this as they employed this as a means of trying to, you know, get the Jews off their backs. The Midianites, on the other hand, involved themselves into something which they did out of pure anti-Semitism. They did it purely because they wanted the Jews to sin. So therefore it's a lesson also that, you know, how we view the Moabites, although they were as guilty indeed, but Hashem says, no, no, vengeance should be taken against the Midianites. There, there is another thing as well. So, so the, um, the Midianites also were the advisors. What? No question of vengeance. I mean, the fact that God wants to take vengeance usually says... Uh, That's why fellow Jews, one Jew to a fellow Jew, says don't take vengeance against another Jew. Mm-hmm. I harm you, I mean, for your personal things, uh, one Jew to another. But here what we're talking about is Hashem says, take vengeance. We find vengeance throughout the Torah. Vengeance is a very common theme. It's not yeah, something which is... Right, that's the same thing. You know what happens, it's interesting. Everybody always takes their own vengeance and never questions it. It's always when you're doing it for principle or you're doing it for some noble cause, vengeance is mine, save the Lord. And that's when everybody comes in saying, vengeance is not Jewish. It's always when, when you don't feel it. When you feel it, then already no one even asks the kasha. It's really the other way around. When it's you personally and one Jew to another Jew, no vengeance. But over here, it's, uh, in fact, it's interesting. The, the Hashem says, Nikom Nikmas B'nai Yisrael. Take the vengeance of the Jews from the Midianim. When Moshe tells the Jews, though, he says, Take vengeance on behalf of Hashem. 
But in any case, why is this considered Moshe's final act? Why is it so important? So here, there's an interesting vort based on an idea which we've already discussed many times. If you look on the, the top two vertlach, they're almost identical. One is in the name of Rav Ruderman, and the other is in the name of Yosef Chaim Zonfeld. The Tamadovah Shemisas Moshe Hoysa Taluya B'Molchemes Midian Nero Levar Kach Yisoy Yiduahu Ban Hogus Abriya We know this is something which we find throughout creation, something which we've discussed many times, which is that there's a balance. In order, we've mentioned it more in the sense of, of freedom of choice. In order for Hashem to maintain the balance in the world of good and evil, that's really the essence of the freedom of choice. Freedom of choice is there'd be no such thing as good if there isn't something such as evil. The reason what we discussed about the existence of evil in the world, part of the existence of evil is in order that it should be good. In other words, if you take it from the vantage point of a pit bull terrier, pit bull terrier is not a bad dog. He just does what he is instinctively going to program to do. I mean, it's not a lion is bad. There's no such thing. You can't judgmentally say anything about the animals. You can't pass judgment on them because there's no free will. They operate on instinct. So there's no such thing as a good dog and there's no such thing as a bad dog. They're always operating all out of instinct. I mean, we feel it's that way. You know, you feel because they're cute, whatever it is, but okay, let's take a gerbil or some other creature that you don't feel so, or a snake. Is there such a thing as a bad snake? I mean, a king cobra is a bad snake. He does. We know what a king cobra does. Is there such a thing as a good snake? Since it doesn't have free will anyway, so there's no good and there's no evil. The only way you can have good and bad is if there's a choice. Once there's choice, you could only do it if you have the balance. If you could choose to be bad and you choose to be good, that's what makes you good, and vice versa as well. But, but more than that also, in order for Hashem to maintain the sense of equilibrium in the world, you can't have a situation of where Jews have miracles and prophecy, and there is no counterpart balance. Of course, everybody's going to be Jewish then. So in the era of miracles and in the era of prophecy, was also the era of Avodah and the era of superstition and supernatural. And this way, the average person can still maintain this equilibrium, this balance. Should I choose this way or that way? That's what we find throughout the Torah. Hashem says, don't be a ma'onen, a menachish, a mechash, but rather, I'm giving you prophecy instead. Don't go to the Kosames, don't go to the Oven, the Yidoni. Rather, you have the Ur of you have the word of Hashem, you have prophecy. By Shaul HaMelech, why does he go to the witch of Endor? The reason is because he tried, he made the attempts the other way. He wasn't getting anywhere, he wasn't getting anywhere from the Ur of from the prophets, from dreams. He says, I, I felt I had no choice. I mean, he had, of course he had a choice, but the point is that he felt the compulsion because this avenue wasn't open, so he chose the other avenue. The moment that Hashem closes one, he has to close the other. Therefore, once, once the Anshik Nesagdola destroyed the Yetzir Hara for Avodah Zara in the world, there's no Avodah Zara, there's no you know, witchcraft and all of this kind of stuff. So what are you going to have? You can have Jewish prophecy still? So everybody's going to see, the whole world sees that Jews have prophecy. I mean, we know that, that historically that Jews were the only nation that had prophets. I mean, even the Christians, when you talk about all their prophets, the overwhelming 95% of them are Old Testament figures. And it's only, you know, what a small amount that are New Testament figures in there. Even when they try to prove their prophecy, it's basically based on the Old Testament. So if you can only have Jewish prophets and nothing else, then the whole world becomes Jewish. There's no real choice. There's no balance. So the equilibrium has to be maintained between the good and evil. So he quotes here from the Vilna Gain that says practically the exact same thing. 
but he just adds a little bit more. He says that this is the way creation operates. That when the forces of darkness and evil exist, you have to have a balance in reverse, which is the forces of Kedusha. This is known as the principle, it's a postic that says, HaKadosh Baruch who made the world with a balance. He made, I mean, even scientifically we know this to be true, right? There's action, reaction. For every action there's a reaction. Matter, antimatter. That they're conjecturing. But even in terms of the essence of the universe, there's matter and antimatter. There's positive charges and negative charges. Electrons and protons. In the whole atom, the whole world exists based on the principle of balance of negative and positive. In fact, if you have a sum total of zero, that's really why we could one, one could actually say that the world was created yesh meyayin, something out of nothing. In other words, really in effect, what was all of creation? Sum total of zero, all Hashem has to do is pull up the zero apart to a negative and a positive, and before you know it, you get a whole universe. You have positive and negative, you have a um, uh, universe and an anti-universe, that's again, conjecture. But I mean, we do know that everything is if you put everything back and add it all up to a zero, we're left with nothing, with iron. Iron is zero, pure nothingness. We add everything up, we're back to zero, no creation. So really we're all figments of, of Hashem's imagination in that sense, because we don't really exist, some total of zero. So, the, the way the world was actually created was zel umazeh, this versus that, matter versus antimatter, positive and negative charges, whatever, that's the way the universe was created. If that's true in the physical world, it's true in the spiritual world as well. That if there's kaychus hatuma, forces of darkness, there has to be forces of light. So, what existed before the creation of the world? What's called called irvuvia, irvuvia, mixture. Everything's mixed up. Some total of zero. A lot of gray. A lot of neutral. A lot of parv. Hashem created the world. It begins with light, darkness. Right? That's the way the world creates. Starts with light and darkness, and and subsequently everything that was the same thing. There's good, but with the creation of good, there's evil. Yotzer or uvarei choshech, also shalom uvarei hara, as the pasuk really is. We we have the uvarei hakol, but the same idea. He makes shalom. He, there's some total of uh, peace and harmony, but it comes from positive and negative. Zel umazeh. Therefore, in the spiritual realm as well, you have the same idea of zel umazeh. You have the koyches hakedusha versus the koyches hatuma. Says the Vilna Gaon. For that reason, when the Gemara in Yuma Samach Testament Day says that the Anshek Nesagadola abolished the Yetzirah of Odezara, at that time, Nevuah prophecy stopped from the Jewish people. Together with the Yetzirah for idolatry, prophecy ended. What's the Kesher Beinish name? Why are the two connected? So he says because of this balance that has to be maintained. As long as Tumas Avodezara, as long as Avodezara existed in the world, we needed the counterbalancing influence of Nevuah. Nevuah was the, was the balance on the scale to oppose the other side of the scale, which was the Kaychas When one became bottle and the scale was removed from the scale, then this had to be removed from this side of the scale, Kimisha bottle avoid the Zara, then Nevuah was bottle. Now we can understand why Moshe's last and final mission is this. Why? Because who was Moshe Rabbeinu? King of the prophets. Who was his balance? Who was his counterpart? Bilam, exactly. As long as Bilam remained in the world, 
It's impossible for Moshe to be taken away from the world. You can't have the removal of Moshe as long as Bilam exists. Because you have to have the balance of Kedusha, of Moshe Rabbeinu, to counterbalance Bilam. Only when Bilam was killed, then, and sure enough, that's what Pasuk Ches says, that they killed out the kings of Midian, together with Bilam ben Boor, Horgu Bechorv, Therefore, it says in this pasuk that in this parsha that the Jews killed Bilam. Now that Bilam is dead, now already Moshe Rabbeinu can go. But more, perhaps more uh, precisely, one could say now Moshe has to go as well. Once Bilam is gone, then already you can't have Moshe Rabbeinu either. Possibly. Let's take a look at the way Rabbi Yosef Chaim Sonnefeld says the same word mainly, basically. Bilam or Russia? Gilam b'chomahusas koyer chatuma. Bilam had the power of uncovering in full force these Kaiches Hatumah that we're talking about which fought the Kaiches HaKadusha, the Torah that Moshe Rabbeinu represents. The bat and the eagle we call them. One was the bat, one was the eagle. But in effect, Bilam had the ability of uncovering the greatest degree, the power of cursing the powers of darkness to sin, to cause the Jews to sin which was the greatest opposition to these forces of good represented by Moshe Rabbeinu Adon Hanavim master of all prophets therefore it was impossible that Moshe Rabbeinu should exit from the world and all the forces of Kedusha should leave and the Kayach of Bilam Arosha should remain in force by itself unchallenged it would rule the world therefore Bilam had to die first in the Melchemist Midian before Moshe Rabbeinu was allowed to die. Bilam had to die first. However, one could say by conjecture that the opposite is also true. Once Bilam is no longer a force to be reckoned with, then Moshe Rabbeinu is just, the free will and the choices are just too great. So there was almost like a kind of a counterpart. They were partners of sorts. They were alter egos of each other. Negative and positive forces. Bilam was the negative charge. Moshe Rabbeinu was the positive charge. Before Moshe can die, Bilam has to die. Once Bilam dies, now already it comes out that Moshe Rabbeinu is going to die as well. So that's just an interesting idea of how this balance and equilibrium is maintained in the world. Now before we go to the question that Miles posed several days ago, I'd like to just continue a little bit more about this war because there's, there's modern lessons to be learned Contemporary lessons to be learned from this particular battle against Midian. What we see really is that they sent out 12,000 Jews to do battle. They faced apparently overwhelming odds because if there's 32,000 captured girls under the age of three, and those are just girls, there's still equal counterpart of males, and then you're talking about adults, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of people, the 12,000 soldiers had to fight. And they successfully met the battle, and not one Jew died in battle. So what is this Elif Lamata, Elif Lamata, that's mentioned in the Pasuk, repeated? 1,000 per tribe, 1,000 per tribe. So there are several versions in the Midrashim and Chazal. According to some, there were actually, well, the Midrash has it really, there were 3,000 drafted per tribe. According to them, there was really 2,000. There was 12,000 that went into battle. 
there was also a thousand that had to do logistics and then there was a thousand that had to pray or as the Medr says it Gimel Alof Mikol Shevet Veshevet Yud Beis Elof Unuchama 12,000 that actually fought the battle but then there was 12,000 that were logistics arms bearers the Yud Beis Elof Utfila but 12,000 that had to go to pray now the following comes really from a from Rebchatzke Levenstein Mashgiach Mashgiach and Ponovich for many years his Sefer Or Yecheskel However, this also really originally comes from a speech that he gave in the city of Kobe, Japan, in 1941. We'll see both versions of it because it's it's really very relevant to us nowadays. Where did you run out 3,000? I see only have it from Atenev. Cesar Chatzka Levenstein, we see from here, from this episode, Strange. You're talking about people that are going out to pray. So why exactly make it 1,000, 1,000, 1,000 exactly equal equivalent amounts? That's number one. Why do you have to have 1,000 per tribe to dive on behalf of the entire Jewish war? As if to say that there has to be some sort of a balance and equilibrium still maintained. I mean, we dive on behalf of the soldiers, that's all. In the first place, why do they even need special prayer to assist them? This is a mitzvah. As far as the Jews were concerned, hey, you know, it's over and done with. Who cares about the Midianites? We're not going to gain anything from this. The Jews were not out to capture land or booty in this case. It was a mitzvah that Shev said, no, you've got to do it. That means it was a Muhammad's mitzvah. So they were really performing a mitzvah, even reluctantly, as we said, by Yimosru. They were handed over. They were reluctant to go into battle. They didn't want Moshe to die. So they were reluctant. They were just merely doing a mitzvah to Hashem. I mean, what's Hashem going to make them fail in battle? Hashem tells them, go wreak vengeance against them. And then must Hashem is commanding them. And if Hashem is commanding them to do battle against the Midianites, one would assume that they're going to meet with success. Hashem is not going to make them fail in battle. So they have a mitzvah. They're not doing it for themselves. There's no selfish purposes involved over here. If anything, they're doing it reluctantly. So they're only doing it l'shem mitzvah. It's a very unique kind of a, of a war. In fact, it's really almost unprecedented unless you want to call with Amalek or something. But here the Jews stand nothing to gain other than doing a mitzvah. They're going to lose Moshe Rabbeinu, which they're reluctant as a result to go to battle. And Hashem tells them to do a mitzvah. They're doing a mitzvah. So of course they're going to be protected. Why do they need the special Elif Lamata for prayers? They aware of the difference of this stage with Yeshua that is supposed to be. I, I don't know if that. I don't know if that really has any relevance to the question. They're going off to battle to do the vengeance of Hashem. That's what Moshe told them. They're doing a mitzvah. It's Mitzvah. It doesn't matter what's going to how fast you do it, that's up to you, to the zeal involved. So therefore, if they, were, if they were guaranteed success from the very beginning, why do they feel necessary to have these, these prayer contingents, these prayer battalions? That from each tribe, 
they actually had a thousand go off with the soldiers into battle in order to daven. Would you have to be there to, to daven? It seems was that they had to go out like battle. When you read the Pusik, you see that the soldiers are going off to battle. It's almost like sounding like that this thousand Jews that are going off to Davin are also going off to battle in the form of prayer. And they're going to actually leave the encampment. That they're going to leave the actual camp and go out and pray. Apparently, they went off with the warriors. As if they went off into the field of battle to pray. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that they stood in the middle of the battle itself with their sedorm in hand. But the point is they went off with the contingents, with the battalions, to battle. And they were their own unit, their own Hester unit, if you will, of prayer Jews that were part of the battle, part of the war. Why? Why is that needed? Couldn't they stay at home and go into the base of Medrash and say, film the way we do it nowadays? You have to go off into battle? I would think that all the whole Shevet would be praying for them. Not just well, that's part of the same question, yes. It could be even asked that. Right, that's the next question. Why is it necessary to try to maintain this this balance as if you will that if a thousand soldiers okay the, the same tribe that produces a thousand draftees for soldiers requires a thousand volunteers for prayer as well I mean wouldn't everybody be praying the whole shape the whole Kalisrom would be davening on their behalf so why need special specifically you know um, drafted and to have a thousand for the purpose of davening almost as if it has to be like a kind of a counterpart of the soldiers that are going to battle. If this thousand contingent wouldn't have gone off, Moshe Rabbeinu and the rest of the Jews wouldn't have davened on their behalf. Like, okay, uh, we need a thousand to pray, a thousand to fight, and we're going to go to sleep. Of course, we'll daven anyway. So even if you wouldn't send out this special contingent of a thousand praying Jews, davening Jews, everybody would have been davening on their behalf anyway. The whole Shevet, the whole Chal Yisrael. Moshe Rabbeinu. So he says like this, he says a very important idea here. So he says, She'en l'shayr ma'gadoy l'kir v'sa'odim ha'rav al-ha'sheker. It's really a lesson as to how close we are in terms of lack of faith and in terms of, of our feeling of our own worth and sense of accomplishment. The machshava of k'aychi v'oitzim yodi, that I did it, it's my victory my battle. I made the money. I'm a smart guy. Look at this great empire that I produced. I, I made the right investments. You know, people tend to take credit for themselves rather than give it to Hashem. People tend to take credit for themselves. This feeling, this attitude is so entrenched deeply in the heart of man that unless you work very hard to be eager to uproot these Thoughts that are really heretical thoughts. Thoughts of denial, of denying of Hashem's relationship to what's happening. These kind of heretical thoughts require, require tremendous work on the person that he shouldn't attribute to himself the credit that is due to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. It's clear. And it's almost impossible to avoid it. This does not only apply, he says, to your average typical Jew. Even if you're a Godel Ador, 
you got to work very hard and very diligently on this point itself. This point that a person tries to attribute his own successes to himself. You have to work on it, no matter how great a person you are, and you got to work on it your entire life. These Jews that went off to, to, to the battle with Midian, Chazal tell us, they were the best, the creme de la creme, the cream of the crop of the generation, the Gedolim Shabbat. Medr says, Anoshim. Who are the Anoshim? Men, men of stature. Sadikim. Bechar Anoshim. Likewise. Nevertheless, in spite of all their greatness, they were so prone, even in such a battle which is clearly obvious, as we've described earlier, that the victory is coming from Hashem. Because it's 12,000 Jews facing hundreds of thousands of enemy, and not one Jew died. Clearly a miracle. But the tendency to give yourself the credit is so great that even when you witness an open miracle, even when you see an open display of Hashem's hand, and you're a tzaddik, and you know you're doing it as a mitzvah, nothing more than a mitzvah, and you're a tzaddik, you still tend to walk away feeling, hmm, I did a job there, didn't I? I'm a pretty great guy. Even a great person has this problem, even in these kind of situations. Therefore, even though they knew that it was a Muhammad's mitzvah, but the, the suspicion, the chashash, was so great that if they win, they will attribute some of the credit to themselves rather than to Hashem. Therefore, to teach us, and even them, and all of Klal Yisrael, this lesson, to show that the Muhammad doesn't come about from your valor, but it's the prayer that does it. And that it's the prayer that Hashem, so to speak, that's doing it. Therefore they have to send into the field of battle, together with the soldiers, a contingent of davening Jews. And it had to be equal counterpart to the battalion of soldiers. A thousand are fighting, oh, we need a thousand out of davening. That's part of the lesson to be driven home, that it's the tefillah that does it. If they would have just been sufficed with the prayer of Moshe Rabbeinu that the, and the Jews that remained in the camp that would have davened then even though later on yeah they knew that the Jews davened on their behalf back in the yeshivas back in the shuls but hey we were out in battle we were there you guys weren't there you don't know what it's all about we fought we fought valorously and therefore they would have attributed some of the success not to the power of prayer but they would have attributed to themselves they themselves had to see the davening. The soldiers themselves needed to see the davening. Only when they saw it with their own eyes did they understand it's prayer that does it. Therefore it was a lesson for the soldiers themselves, sadikim though they were, seeing miracles though they saw, but they had to be driven home the message don't think it's your power that's doing it. Therefore, they had to send an equal amount of warriors for prayer and for davening. If they would have relied merely on the prayers of Moshe Rabbeinu and all the other Jews, it wouldn't have been enough. They had to see the prayer with their own eyes and they had to see the right amount and the right contingent. I remember... I saw, I, don't, I forgot already if it's from Chatzka Levenstein himself, I don't remember from who anymore, from Big Bali Musa also, that really there's also a reverse aspect to it, which is 
It's easy for us to pray for the soldiers and everything else, but they're the ones in the foxholes. They're the ones that are suffering. They're the ones that are scared. We have to feel scared. This was said, I think it was by the Rebchatzkel or by one of them, during the Six-Day War, when the yeshiva students who were not fighting, they were in Ponovich, they were davening. Maybe it was near, maybe it was Rebchatz Shmulevitz. I don't remember anymore who's the one that said this word. Maybe it was even Rebchatz one of those three, either Rebchatzka Levenstein, Rebshach, or Rebchaim Shmulevitz, said, I think it was Rebshach, come to think of it. He said that although you're not going off into battle and fighting, and you're not doing battle and war, but you at least have to feel with them as if you're in battle. You have to feel the same sense of danger and fright. Of course, that affects the tefillah itself. Obviously, there's a difference between sitting back with your feet on the table and davening for somebody else and feeling that the bombs are going over you. When the scuds are flying, and you know that you could that you're in the same danger as they are. And in the Six-Day War, when you feel like you're on the front line, it's a different tefillah. So that was part of it also. You have to have front-line tefillah. Just like a front-line battle, was you, you wage the war with greater vigor and you wage it with greater valor when you're on the front lines and when you're sitting in the back. You wage the battle of tefillah with greater valor when you're on the front lines. So it's necessary to have the right prayer. I mean, he doesn't say this. I'm just adding it to it. But could be that would be another explanation of why they had to send a thousand soldiers into battle. As if to tell them, hey, we want the prayer. You have to see what's happening over there and therefore feel with the soldiers. Then it's a different kind of prayer. The point of this was that just because you're yeshiva students and you're exempt from, from battling and from the army and from doing uh, military service, but you're not exempt. If anything, you have to feel the exact same way as the soldiers feel. And you're doing it with the power of prayer and learning, but you have to feel the same sense of, um, <clears throat> of fear and danger. And you have to feel that same sense of valor. And you have to apply yourself with the same heroic efforts, the same efforts, and the same sense of danger as if you were on the front lines. The truth is, during the Six-Day War, it was like that. Because all of Israel was on the front lines. And in a sense, they went up on the roof to see the bombs and everything else, to feel the sense of, we're with them in the same travail that they're in the same tzara that they're in we're in and therefore we're, we're together as one and we're going to daven as one so therefore it comes out that there's a double message here one is that the soldiers needed the message to know the impact of prayer but then you needed the daveners to feel what it means to be on the, on the battle lines in the, in the forefront of the battle to feel the danger in order to know what it means to battle because prayer ultimately and battle is the same. How do we know that? We know that, of course, from Yaakov Avinu. Yaakov Avinu says that Asher Amori that I took from the hands of the Amorites b'charbi u'bekashti with my sword and with my bow, bow and arrow. Says Targum Unkelis, the I took it with my prayer and my beseeching of Hashem. These are the two things. My prayer, my, my regular prayer, my beseeching, my crying out to Hashem. In other words, when the Bnei Yaakov, the sons of Yaakov, were off doing battle against the, against the Shechemites and against the other local Palestinians over there, Yaakov Vino had to daven. He had to daven very hard for them. But there's a double message here. That not only do you have to daven hard for them, but you have to view the prayer as Cherub and Keshes. The true sword of a Jew is his mouth. The true battle that a Jew does wages is with speech. And therefore, the Torah is not metaphorically referring to prayer 
Becharbi Ubekashti, but actually. It's not merely just a metaphor for prayer. This is the essence of prayer. And therefore, it's literally, Becharbi Ubekashti. What's the Cherub and Keshes of Yaakov? Hakol Kol Yaakov, Hayadaimi De Yesov. The voice of Jacob versus the hands of Esav. If you want to do battle with the hands of Esav, the sword, Achar B'chotichya, then you need the Hakol Kol Yaakov. Chazal say, as long as the voice of Jacob is heard in the in the base of Medrash, in the base of Knesset, the hands of Jacob of Esav are stayed. So therefore, what Yaakov was saying was literally true. It wasn't merely a metaphor and an allusion to what prayer is. Charbi Yubakashti by a Jew is Tlosi Wusi. So Targum Unkelis, and Targum Unkelis always sticks to Pshat. He rarely veers from Pshat. He translates Charbi Yubakashti as Tlosi Ubuusi. My prayer, my sword, that's the same thing. It's one and the same. You see the same thing over here. In this battle, this Melchamas Mitzvah, all you need is a thousand warriors. You're faced with overwhelming odds. Don't worry about it. And not one Jew died. It was miraculous. But you know what? Elif Lamata, Elif Lamata. And that's why really when you read the Pusik, you only see 1,000 Jews. But it's a mirror image. It's the same balance. You can't have 1,000 Jews with swords unless you have 1,000 Jews with prayer. You have to have sharp tongues. The pen or the tongue is mightier than the sword. That's the lesson of Judaism. So that's really the lesson over here. The lesson is that by Jews, the pen, the tongue is mightier than the sword. And that's why you have to have equal counterparts. You have a thousand soldiers going off to battle for a battalion. You have a thousand soldiers in the battalion for, for davening. They're also soldiers. They're also soldiers. The balance has to be maintained. So it works both ways. It works one way that the soldiers themselves have to realize what prayer is, but it also is a lesson to the, to the daveners what battle is, what war is. You're also going into war. But ultimately the two things come together as one message. The message is, this is how we fight battles. This is how we wage war. We wage war with equal contingents and battalions of warriors and daveners. And they're both equally effective and equally necessary. But it's a lesson of faith to the soldiers. Remember, it's prayer. Hezber Hadovar. People are very much influenced by what they see. Therefore, if you don't see in your, with your own eyes the efficacy of prayer, your heart is going to be drawn after what your eyes sees. And what your eyes see is battle strategy as being the way to victory. And you'll say that the war is, is fought with the valor and the gvur of the people. And therefore, just to merely know that there's someone at home davening on your behalf is not enough to overcome the influence that the eyes have on a person to attribute and give credit to himself. This is what I saw. That's what I know. And that wouldn't be enough even for tzaddikim such as these people witnessing miracles such as they witnessed. But it still wouldn't be enough to overcome this natural tendency and inclination that people have to give the credit to themselves. Because my eyes tell me and then they would have actually been vanquished in war the reason why they were so successful is because they were able to maintain at all times this connection to Hashem now we can understand why Moshe Rabbeinu lifted up his hands in, in eyeshot of the Jewish people 
Because the 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 Gemara, the, the Mishnah Rosh Hashanah tells us that what was Moshe doing there? It wasn't his hands that did the battle, but it was Kadesh L'Shabed Libam Lavim Shmashamayim. Zois Hasibu Shemashaherim Yodav B'Melchemas Amolek. That Bnei Yisrael should be Meshabed Libam Lavim Shmashamayim. That's the Gemara Rosh Hashanah Daf Chavtes. But he did it specifically nearby, near enough that they should see him, because they had to at all times remember we're doing battle. You know, Moshe's hands are raised in prayer. His hands, Tagamunkels translates over the raising of hands as the raising of the arms in prayer. Tagamunkels and um, add the word sali, which is prayer over there. In other words, the Jews have to at all times be aware and cognizant of the dynamics of how the battle is being waged. That is being waged with prayer and faith in Hashem. Then they're victorious. When they lose sight of that, that's when the Jews lose. Hakol kol Yaakov. The voice is the voice of Yaakov. Therefore, at all times, there's a lesson here, and this is now already more of a Muslim lesson, because it tells us about the influence that our eyes have on ourselves and how we can be so caught up, and we have to constantly remind ourselves of this lesson. And therefore he says, if you stop thinking of Yerashamayim, immediately these these darker forces enter into you and you wind up losing faith. Faith is something that has to be constantly reinforced. And therefore he ends up, he says, the reason why nowadays this seems like a big chiddish to us is because we're so far from the truth of this point. That's why the Torah tells us, that's why Chazal required every Jew to say a hundred brachas every day. A hundred brachas every day. You make a hundred brachas every day in order that to drive home the point before I eat, comes from Hashem. Before I drink, it comes from Hashem. I went to the bathroom, my health comes from Hashem. I daven in the morning, I thank you for my eyesight. I thank you for my clothing, for my shelter, for the ability to walk, for my health, to drive home to the person. The first thing you think in the morning is, that you return my soul to me. To remind yourself, as soon as you wake up, Hashem returned my soul to me. Therefore we have a mitzvah, to make a hundred brachas a day in order that we shouldn't forget because we need the constant reinforcement that's what we learn from these people that's the musr that we can learn from the story that these people as great as they are they had to have the daveners next to them what does that tell us about ourselves when we go through our daily life that we need constant reinforcement they say there's no atheist in the foxholes if anything when you're in battle you have faith in Hashem so what do they need these people there they're in battle, they're in war they're facing overwhelming odds what would you think? They're not going to have faith? They're facing hundreds of thousands of Midianites. They're not going to have faith. There's no atheists in the foxholes. They're, they're only doing it for the sake of a mitzvah. They're tzaddikim. I mean, we add all these points together. They're tzaddikim. They're the chosen. They're only doing it as a mitzvah. And they're faced with overwhelming odds. And they're going into battle anyway, which where there's no atheists in the foxholes. And then they win an overwhelming victory miraculously. And not one Jew dies. And we're not such great people. And we're faced with constant battering of ourselves in, in terms of, of these thoughts. We need constant reinforcement. So that's why we have to daven. And that's why we say a hundred times brachas every day to thank Hashem for every pleasure which we get. In order that we should appreciate that it's not with our own power that it comes to us, but it comes to us from Hashem. The whole idea of a brach, the Gemara says, is because it's like stealing. It was before everything, Hashem Aratzim Loa, the world belongs to Hashem. How do you acquire something? With a bracha. The 
bracha is your, is your ticket to purchase it from Hashem, so to speak. It belongs to Hashem. You buy it. But what is this purchase price? What are you paying Hashem? All you're paying Him is recognition. Recognition that it was Him. He says, go ahead and have it, gladly. It's like someone going into your house and you're willing to give Him whatever you have, to give Him whatever meals you have there, and gladly you'll give it to Him. With one condition. That he realizes that it's yours. That it's not His. The person comes into your home and starts going through the drawers and the refrigerator. You go, hey, it's not yours. Gladly I'll invite you and take whatever you want. But you have to realize it's mine. So the purchase price from Hashem is the awareness and recognition and the acknowledgement that it comes from Hashem. That's, that, then He gives it to you. That's what you do when you make a bracha. That's why the Chazal say, that's what the Gemara says, that when you make a bracha, that's how you acquire it. The acquisition of the item is with the bracha. Before the bracha belongs to Hashem, after the bracha belongs to you. What was the transfer with the bracha? All the bracha was is a thank you and a please. It's please Hashem, thank you, it's yours, please give me. I thank you for what you give me. Oh, it's an awareness, an acknowledgement that it belongs to Hashem. Now Hashem gladly gives it to you. Now it's yours already. With the acknowledgement that it's His, it becomes yours. That's the price you're paying. So therefore, this is something true that we could learn from the battle of Midian to our daily battles in life. If they needed it, we need it. Therefore, all those people that ask questions, why do you have to daven every day? Hashem knows your needs. Hashem knows, but you don't. You don't know that it's coming from Hashem. You need the reinforcement. Why do we say Shema Yisrael twice a day? What is Shema? God is one. Okay, I know. God's one. I'm a monotheist. That's it. I declare myself openly a monotheist. That's it. For the rest of my life, I'm a monotheist. I have to do twice a day? Yeah, because lessons of faith have to be drilled home and driven in because otherwise you tend to forget. If you don't have constant reinforcement, you're going to forget. So you have to say Shema twice a day to drive home the essence of Jewish faith and Jewish belief. You have to have tefillah three times a day to drive home the point that everything comes from Hashem. Shema is the essence of Jewish philosophy, or the essence of Jewish theology, I should say. The essence of Jewish faith is embodied in the Shema. But the practical aspects, in other words, to believe that Hashem is master of the world practically. It's one thing to say God is the king of the universe and all this kind of stuff. But what does that do with me personally? To say, to relate Hashem to you personally, on a personal level, and to, and to demonstrate faith in divine providence, that's Shemon Esrei. Shemon Esrei is a demonstration of faith in divine providence because you're talking about to Hashem about your personal needs that He's going to provide it. Baruch is likewise the same thing. That's why we need it so many times a day as constant reinforcement. So therefore, this becomes a lesson that we learn from, the, from these battalions that were done of equal parts. That they had to be there that they should see it. Now, look at the next little piece. This is taken really, it's the same theme exactly, from the same person, from Chatzkel Levenstein. But this was done, this was said by Rebchatzkel in Kobe, Japan, when they were, um, when the Mir Yeshiva escaped from, uh, from, from Hitler, from Europe. And, you know, they, they referred to it always as Shanghai, but it wasn't really in Shanghai. It was really in Kobe, which is near Shanghai. So at that time, they were, they, they just made it. And he started talking to them about war and battles. It was 1941, in the middle of the war, and how they were saved. And he talked about the relationship between war and weaponry and tefillah. Uh, so it was in Parshish Matos. It was in Parshish Matos of the year Tovshin Aleph, which is 1941. 
and he starts off his musashmus, Elef Lamata, Elef Lamata, Lechol Matos Yisrael, Tishlochul Atzava. Says Reb the Medrash says that there were 2,000. Some say there was 3,000, as we said earlier. What? Why was tefillah needed when they were doing a Mohammed Hashem and Mohammed Mitzvah? The lesson that you learn is that tefillah is the weaponry of a Jew. As he goes now to the basic point over here, which is Hashem is saying, do a mitzvah, fight the Midianites. Okay, fight the Midianites. Ah, good, we have to pray, whatever it is. But Moshe Rabbein is saying, a thousand. Ah, a thousand means, of course, a thousand to pray. If you have a thousand to fight. Certainly you can have a thousand to pray. What does that teach us? Especially because it's only... Prayer is the weaponry of a Jew. That's what you learn from here. You learn from here that when Hashem says, do battle, fight a war, how do you wage war? With weapons. What is the weapon of a Jew? It's prayer. That tefillah is the clay zayin. It's the weaponry of Jews in every single war. Even the Muhammad's mitzvah, when it's quite obvious... That Hashem is going to help you. But when Hashem says fight and do battle and wage war, you wage war with weapons. The weapon of a Jew is prayer. And therefore it teaches us... Of course, 100%. 100%. Yeah. This isn't for the Jews before. That they always no, no, uh, certainly. There's no question that you need soldiers. <coughs> but it tells us also that soldiers and prayer and weaponry is the same thing. That's what Chazal said on the Pasuk the truth is in Pasuk Ches when we said there's Bilam ben Be'or horgu bechorev and Bilam ben Be'or they killed with a sword why is it necessary to say they killed Bilam with a sword they killed Bilam Bilam was one of the victims says Rukhatzkel Chazal say on this Pasuk which Rashi brings down what does it mean Bilam ben Be'or they killed with a sword they bar his they bar the weapons of the guy because he barred Jewish weapons he came against the Jews and he exchanged the the, the ways and the occupation, as well as the, what? Prophecy for a person. Right. Well, no, no, no. He used Jewish means to fight the Jews. Because Jews are only saved, We know that Jews, what is the weaponry of a Jew? That's the weaponry of a Jew. Came Bilam and wanted to use Jewish weaponry, Jewish arms, which is not the force of arm, of the Yad. Hakol kol Yaakov ayudami the Esav. The arm, the arm of the arms of a Jew is his mouth. The arms of Esav is the sword. Bilam the guy comes to fight the Jews, fight fire with fire. Fight Jews with their own arms, with their own weapons, with the mouth, but to curse. So he took them and he went to fight the Jews by cursing them. They came to him and they said, Huh, you thought you were going to battle us with your mouth? We're going to kill you with your sword. So what do we see from here? We see again this balance, this exchange. This goes back to the beginning. We said there's a balance between Bilam and Moshe. But there's also a balance between the force of arms and the force of the mouth. There's a balance between Hakol Kol Yaakov, as Chazal say, when the, when the voice of Jacob is heard, the arms of Esau are stayed. When the voice of Jacob is silent, and the arms of Esav, Al-Kharb reigns supreme. So the balance is always there. Likewise, the same thing happened over here. Bilam wants to fight fire with fire. The Jews 
turn the table, so to speak, on him. But again, we're, we're, what we're seeing from all of this, though, is the exact balance of sword and prayer. Tefillah is kli umnaseinu mamish. It's a cherev. Just like the sword of the nations, so is the mouth of Israel. Just like the nations fight with arms, we fight with our mouths. Just like they fight with tilim, which are missiles. In Hebrew, missiles are called tilim. We fight with tilim. Our tilim versus their scud tilim. We see over here the power of prayer, he says in the last paragraph. They sent exactly 1,000 per tribe of prayer, of weapon bearers, as well as of prayer bearers. Kolzois is, again, to drive on this point, that there shouldn't be a greater weight given to soldiers with swords than to those that pray. People shouldn't make a mistake into thinking that you need more soldiers than you need daveners. Therefore, just like you can't fight battles without warriors, without arms, likewise Jews cannot vanquish their foes without daveners, without the spawn. This, of course, is something which nowadays is extremely important. I remember after the Six-Day War, most of you remember as well, everybody said they see the hand of God. And yes, everybody saw the hand of God. But let's be realistic. We all know that they saw the hand of God in the Battle of Midian even more so. Because they faced overwhelming odds and there was not one Jewish casualty. And they did it as a mitzvah. Nevertheless, we see that even great people have to, with their own eyes, see the efficacy of prayer. Otherwise, they become influenced by military strategy. And the same thing is true nowadays. In the back of everyone's mind, as much as you believe that the Six-Day War is the hand of God, there's a little germ that's worming its way through over there that says, yeah, but they had great military strategy and the invincible Israelis. And, and it was such a disillusionment to them with the Yom Kippur War. And what happened to the great Israeli Superman superhero? How come they lost? How could they have almost lost the way they did? And it was, it was a blow to them. In fact, the Arabs to this day consider the Yom Kippur War their victory because psychologically they won in this sense. They won this psychological battle. Although they lost the war, but they won the battle. The battle for the mind and for the soul. He said, oh, we see now that the Jews are not invincible. They're not supermen. They're not, they're not these great warriors. And to them, that was the victory. And that's all they needed. They don't need more than that. They could lose the war. They could lose tens and tens of thousands of Arabs. But they won this psychological point. And to them, that's enough. So therefore, we do know that we were guilty of this in the Six-Day War. That after the war was over, although people said they see the Yad Hashem, and there was a little bit of an infusion of spirituality into the total body of the Jewish people. But with it all, there was still a little bit of this germ of, hey, we're mighty, we're valorous, we're powerful, we have good weaponry, we have good strategy, we had American weaponry versus the Russian stuff, and we were smarter than them, and Jews are brighter, and this and that, and we're whatever, more heroic. All of these things were there. And we have to remember that if you don't see prayer in front of you, and that's why when it comes nowadays, you know, you have Hester Yeshivas, but Hester Yeshivas are a small percentage of the total soldiers in Israel. I mean, you're talking about 90% of the soldiers of Israel are not, certainly not religious. Only 10-15% are. And then to say that there's an equal counterpart in the Yeshivas to the amount of soldiers, I don't know, figure out the numbers yourself, but it's not like that. And certainly the attitude in Israel is not like that. The attitude is not like, what do we gain from them? Why don't we draft them all? What are they doing for Israel? 
You have to remember. Elof lamata, elof lamata. 1,000 per 1,000. What are they doing for Israel? So we have to bear that in mind. At this point, we have now more or less finished this part of the section. Let's now go to, to the question that Miles asked. We find, we find over here that when Moshe, when the soldiers return, Moshe gets angry. As we said, he gets angry at them, and he starts criticizing them for doing something wrong. He then tells them what they have to do. Eliezer then takes up the thread and he says, "A new mitzvah in the Torah." Says Rashi, "When Moshe loses his temper." He makes a mistake. He makes a halachic mistake as well. He lost the laws of kashering. Which is where we learn out the laws of, of, um, of kashering. We find the same thing, says Rashi, by Shmini Lamiluim, where again Moshe Rabbeinu gets angry. As it says, Vayiktsov Moshe Elalozabeli Somor. Bolichlau Kas, Bolichlau Taos. He makes a mistake because of his anger, losing his temper. He makes a halachic mistake, and we find the same thing by striking the rock. He gets angry at the Jews, he makes a mistake, he strikes the rock. Say Chazal, we learn a lesson from here, that you could be the smartest, wisest, greatest person. If you lose your temper, you're inevitably going to make some sort of a mistake. And therefore we find three places where Moshe loses control, loses his temper, as a result he loses Torah, and he makes a blunder. We find by Shmini Lamelum, where he's angry at Elazar in his summer, we find it by striking the rock instead of hitting, instead of speaking to the rock, and we find it over here. Can you imagine the embarrassment? Moshe standing there, he gets angry, and he starts telling them that Allah is all of a sudden he forgets. It. He forgets in the middle. He's standing before millions of people, and he's telling them the Torah of Hashem, what you're supposed to do. And then he says, one second, you also there's something you got to do with the kalim. What, what is that you got to do with the kalim? And at that point, Eliezer has to take up the thread and say. This is the law that God commanded Moshe. That's why he says, Zos chukas ha-Torah Hashem es Moshe. In other words, Eliezer very carefully gives credit to Moshe. But again, you have to understand the, the, the picture over here. Moshe is there telling them the mitzvahs, but as a result of his loss of control and temper, he forgets the halach. That's how Chazal learn from this story. They see all of these lessons. Comes Eliezer, and he interjects and he says, okay, I'll, I'll fix it up. I'll take care of the rest. Says, this is the law of kashering as God commanded to our master Moshe. And this is what you have to do. And then he finishes off telling them the law of kashering, fire, water, toiveling possibly. Again, it's a whole question as to what were all the laws he told them. He told them the laws of kashering, certainly. That things that absorb um, treif by fire have to be kashered through fire, through through libun, through glowing. Things that absorbed it by cooking have to be boiled. That's how we kasher with cooking with boiling water. And then you also have to either, one of two things, either you have to make it tar because it was tome for the dead bodies. So for that you need the main nida, which would then refer to the to the poratum. That's what most poshet and mefarshim learn, as we'll see shortly. Um, the pashtonim, rather. Chazal learned from there that you have to be toivel them also. That when a Jew acquires a goyish uh, utensil, you have to be tivelin in the mikveh, and that's meinido. It has to be kosher for a nida, meinido forty saw kosher for a nida. So that's what Elazar finishes off teaching them those lessons. Now, what's interesting now is the rest of the Rashi in Pasha Shmini. 
if you go back to Parsha Shmini, it says that in the middle of the Shmini Lamiluim, not of an Aviyu die, and they have to continue, the show must go on, as we said earlier, and they have to continue the, the inauguration dedication rites and rituals. Moshe comes in, he finds something was burnt, Vayiktsov, and he gets angry on who? Al Elazar Vali Summer Bnei Aaron Hanosarim. He gets angry at Elazar and Summer, and he says to them, he criticizes them, why you eat it, etc., etc., comes Aaron to the defense of what they did. And Elazar and Summer were quiet. They didn't respond, although they had what to respond. There again, Moshe was wrong, as it says at the end of the parsha. Aaron says, but look what happened, and based on this, isn't the halacha supposed to be that? We're not going to go into all the details. Moshe, Moshe, says, you know what, you're right, I forgot. How did Moshe forget? Again, he lost his temper. By losing his temper, by being angry, he forgot the halacha, and Moshe made a mistake. Who corrects Moshe over there on the mistake? Aaron, not Elazar. Says Rashi, Elazar didn't respond because of, out of respect. Yochol, you would think, that he was stunned, he was shy, he didn't know what to say. The reason why Elazar didn't answer is because he didn't know how to respond. He needed Aaron to respond on his behalf because he couldn't. You would think Elazar didn't have what to respond with. Talmud Lomar, we have our parsha. When he needed to, and when he had to, when he wanted to, he was able to speak even in front of Moshe, in front of all of the tribes, in front of all of the elders, in front of all the princes. When Elazar had to get up there to speak, he was able to. So therefore we see, what's interesting though, is the parallel between these two parshios. You find over there Moshe getting angry at Elazar, but Elazar shvaig, he doesn't say anything. Here, Moshe now gets angry at the Jews and all of a sudden again Moshe forgets comes Elazar to the rescue and, and now Elazar HaKohen speaks up and actually gives a mitzvah that was previously never mentioned it's almost like this is a reward it's almost like a reward that for being silent and quiet earlier he's given the privilege of giving one or maybe even more than one of the Tariyag mitzvahs in the Torah were given through Elazar because Moshe forgot so he attributes it back to Moshe. This all comes from Moshe. But he's now publicly proclaiming it. So one of the parsha of Gi'ulei Midyon, the parsha of kashering utensils, is actually given by Elazar to the Jewish people. And in a way, one could say, it's a kind of a reward for the fact that he was silent the first time. But what's also interesting is the parallel in the two parshios that Moshe was angry in both places. In one pl- and in both places, the object or I shouldn't say the object in both cases, but Elazar was present, either as the object or as a bystander. So in both cases, Elazar is present. In the first part, he's actually angry at Elazar. In the second one, he's not, but Elazar is there. And Elazar becomes a key player in both places where Moshe becomes angry and loses control because of his anger. In this case, he comes to the rescue over there. Moshe Rabbeinu just forgot. So that's just an interesting parallel. Miles' question, though, was the following. Now we finally get to that. How does Elazar introduce this mitzvah? It's such a wonderful, it's a tremendous mitzvah. Kashering, toiveling. Zos chukas Where else do we have zos chukas these words used? We have it by Poraduma. Chukas. And the parish is called chukas for that reason. And it's introduced, the laws of Poraduma are called zos chukas Zos chukas 
Over there it's those who kasatora should see Hashem leimor. Here it's those who kasatora should see Hashem as motion. And the the, the pasuk introduces itself almost identically. Those who kasatora should see Hashem, and here it's should see Hashem as motion. But we spent so much time explaining why Poradu was introduced almost in a universal kind of a way. Zos Chukasator. We say we never use that. We always say Zos Chukas Hapora, Zos Chukas Hapesach, Zos Chukas. In the Torah it says the word Zos Chukas very often. But it doesn't say Zos Chukas HaTorah when it refers to one mitzvah. When it refers to one mitzvah, it refers to that mitzvah specifically. Zos Chukas Hapora, it should say, or Zos Chukas HaPesach. But to say Zos Chukas HaTorah, which is a broad general term, and to refer to specifically Poraduma, that was something which we spent many, many t- hours discussing. All of the Mephoshim talk about it. And the bottom line is that something special and unique about Poraduma and about Parshas Chukas that's introduced by saying, Zos Chukas HaTorah. The marquee of the Mitzvah Poraduma is this is the entirety, the sum total of Chukas HaTorah. Comes Miles and says, What do you mean we find the same words used over here? On a rather insignificant mitzvah. I mean, we just made a whole big deal out of Porah Aduma. We don't find it anywhere else. What do you mean? We do find it somewhere else, right over here. Zos Chukas HaTorah. And it's being said by who? By Elozer. It's actually being uttered by Elozer out of all people. So what does Elozer have to do with it? And why is the mitzvah over here introduced with Zos Chukas HaTorah? This has become the embodiment of the entire Torah. Porah Aduma, we gave all kinds of explanations and Pirushim, why Porah Aduma? We're saying that it's Chok, it's the, it's the epitome of Chok. Right, Paradum is the utter epitome of Chok. And therefore, all of the Torah is embodied in that concept of Chok. What does that have to do with here? Kashering. Kashering dishes. What's the connection between this and Paraduma? And also, in, a, uh, in another sense, in the Midrashically, why would this Parsha deserve the same kind of marquee that we have by Zoschukas Hatorah by Paraduma? So we have three questions. First of all, what is the connection between the mitzvah over here of Kasher and Kalim with Por Aduma? Secondly, why is this Mishnah given this prominent display of Zos Chukas HaTorah as if this epitomizes, this is the paradigm, this is the model mitzvah of the Torah like, like uh, Por Aduma was, this is considered the embodiment of the entire Torah? And thirdly, why is the laws are really given the privilege of being the one to give this kind of a mitzvah, this great mitzvah which is given such a featured prominence of Zos Chukas HaTorah? We explained once how Poradum is considered the epitome of the entire Torah because every mitzvah in the Torah has a little bit of an element of Chok and since Poraduma is the model Chok, it's the paradigm of Chok and all mitzvahs of the Torah contain an element of Chok therefore all mitzvahs of the Torah contain an element of Poradum in it and we explained to the Rachaim that if you keep Poradum it's like keeping the whole Torah because it shows that you're keeping it as a Chok so we explained why by Poradum we say Zos Chok but why here by Hechsher Kalim, do we use the same term as Zos Chukas Torah? Why is the Leezer given this privilege? How does it connect to Poraduma? Comes the Sforno and throws some cold water on all of our questions because he explains the Pasha so simply that it almost takes away the weight of all of our questions. He also explains the Pasha Pshats just so simply that it leaves us without any questions. Says the Sforno, Zos Chukas HaTorah, Masha Omer Lochem Moshe Shetishatu Shlishi Yushvi in other words, Allah is really being given the mitzvah to introduce, I guess because of what Chazal said, Moshe Rabbeinu, by losing his uh, temper, he, lo- he forgot a mitzvah, and therefore Allah was given the privilege of filling in that mitzvah. 
But the Zos Torah part goes on the earlier portion. Moshe got done. He comes to them and he says to them, after he gets angry, He gets angry at them. And he tells them what to do. And then afterwards he tells them that anybody that's Tomei Meis, anybody that's Tomei Meis, you have to become purified with the ashes of the Poradum on the third and on the seventh day. Comes a lozer and he says, Now I'm going to tell you a new halacha, but the Torah that Moshe said was Zos Moshe. That which Moshe said is the Torah referring back actually to the Poraduma itself. In other words, the mitzvah Poraduma was the mitzvah that Moshe Rabbeinu just enunciated, which is referred to throughout as Zos Torah. And therefore, the Zos Torah of this Posik goes back on the previous parsha. This which preceded that Moshe Rabbeinu explained to you, that's the Chukas HaTorah of Poradum, of how to be metire something that's Tomei. That which Moshe just earlier, in the previous Pasuk, said to you that you have to purify in the third and the seventh, that's the din of the Chukas HaTorah, which is the Poraduma, which tells us the laws of being metire from Tumas Hameis. Now comes the next pasuk, which is Elazar's pasuk. This is the pasuk that Elazar is telling them. Ah, now I'm going to tell you a new halacha, namely that metal utensils, milvad oisav hatara, tzorch shetagilu oisav. Besides what Moshe Rabbeinu said, don't think it's sufficient to merely sprinkle ashes on them to make them tahar, because that's only sufficient to take away their tumas hames. But they still have to be kashered in order to be used because they're treif. So don't think that what Moshe Rabbeinu said was going to be sufficient. That Zos Moshe. That was the mitzvah of kash of of being metahir from Tumas Meis, which Moshe Rabbeinu said by the parsha of Chukas which is the parsha of Poradumu, which is the parsha of being metahir from Tumas Hameis. That's what Moshe told you. Now I'm going to tell you another halacha, which is the halacha of Kashrus of Yeridea. Till now we're talking in parshas Taras. In, in Mesechus Taras, in Seder Taras, now I'm going to tell you a law of Yeridea, namely that because of the absorption of Treif, you have to kasher it. So for that, you need Hagola. And there's two forms. One is Libun, which is burning out the Treif, which is Libun, which is, um, which is burning it to the point of glowing. And the other is boiling water. And therefore, don't think that by a klimatchas, by a metal utensil, it's enough what Moshe Rabbeinu said, which was to use the ashes of the poraduma. You have to kasher them. And ach nido yischato, that pasuk is telling us the reverse. Why is Eliezer then, why is Eliezer repeating it? First he says, ach because of the metal things. Called the Rashi Yovo Anything that should be brought in fire has to be kashered in fire. The toy, and then it becomes usable because then it becomes kosher. But you should use meinido, which Poshet Pshat refers back again to the Poraduma. Why is Allah repeating that since we've already said it? Says the Sforno. Don't think that just because you kashered it and now it's like a brand new keli since you could use it, it's already kosher from its, from its tray. Don't think that that's enough to take it out of its Tumas Meis with Libun, with glowing. You still have to purify with Poraduma water and therefore Tumas Meis is not removed with Libun, only, only Treif is removed with Libun. So you need both things. So Allah is really saying both things. Moshe Rabbeinu told you about, about being metahirit from Tumas Meis. That's only sufficient for Tumas Meis. But you still have to kasher it through fire or through boiling water in order to kasher it. Now that you've kasher it, don't think that's sufficient for Tumas Meis. So you need both. 
you need Poraduma for the Tuma, and you need the Hagola or the Libun for the Kashras. And therefore he says that for the purpose of kashering it in fire, but you still need the main nido yishata in order to purify it from its tumas mace. And and another form of hagola is with water, that's another form of kashering. According to this form, we no longer have a question as to why he says Oshukasatara, because that does actually refer to Poraduma, that's the connection to Poraduma. It's only the next Pasik is what Elazar adds. He adds it because of the fact that Moshe Shavayinu forgot because he got angry. But it's telling you a new halacha. It's nothing to do with Porah Aduma. And the Zos Chukasatara does not refer to the Kashring. It refers back to the Porah Aduma. And therefore, the only place where we find Zos Chukasatara used is by Porah Aduma. Here it's referring to Porah Aduma. And of course, in Pashat Chukas, it's referring to Porah Aduma. Rashbam also learns that the words main need over here refer to the Porah Aduma. To be metar them from Tumas Meis. And the other things are required in order the Shadvar Michael So there's two things required here. Ach you need the ashes of the Poraduma to the Mitumas Nefesh to be Mitaradim from Tuma. And the other things needing namely the Hagola or the Libun, that's Lunakhaisim to clean them from the Isr Michael, from the absorbed trafe, Hanivil Bekalim that was absorbed in the Kalim. The Avnezra points out on that. That again, may need to seemingly like the Sforn or like the Rashbam say refers to the May Afer Hapora, just like the word May is used throughout over there in Pashas Chukas to refer to Poraduma. But Chazal tells us, as I said earlier, that May Nida here refer, refers to a mikveh, that this is another halach altogether, namely that when you buy or when you acquire a Gaishi utensil, you have to be toivalid just to make the acquisition from a, to make it usable. To which the Evan Ezra makes a little bit of a tongue in cheek comment. They have a better mind than us. To me, it would seem that Achvameinida literally here is referring to the Poraduma. That's what the Rashbam and the Sforno say. That's what the Avnezer says. But Chazal had a drosh here. Meinida means a sufficient quantity of water in a mikveh that a nido could use to make herself to her. That's what you need for Tvilas Kalim. And it's telling us here the law is not of Hagolas Kalim only, but of Tvilas Kalim. So there's two alochas being said here. Really, in actuality, there's three alochas. Moshe Ben was telling us laws of Poraduma that's Tara from Tumas Hames. And Elazar is adding to us two more halochas Hagolas Kalim and Tvilas Kalim. The Evan Ezra, though, adds one other interesting insight. What's this Elazar HaKohen that's saying it over here? So we've already said that Moshe Rabbeinu forgot because he got angry. Says, says the Evan Ezra, Ki chukas tairas hapora le'elazar nidna. Ma'isha malam tizchatu derech klal, Elazar pirish lem, and Elazar says the details of the laws of Poraduma. In Parshas Poraduma, it says, Zois chukas hatairas, shetziva Hashem leymar, daber al so viko ilecha Poraduma, Mitzvah to take a poraduma, that's the chukas hatar. The next passage says, When the satam I saw el alazar give the poraduma for a lozer to do. So there are two ways of learning pshat in that. Some learn pshat is that this is a law in all poradumas. That since poraduma is done not in the base of English itself, it's done outside of the compound of the temple, it's done outside the precincts of the base of Migdash, it's done on Hartsofen, therefore it's inappropriate for the Kohen Godel to do it. And therefore, the number two Kohen does it, rather than the Kohen Gadol who's supposed to stay in the base of Mikdash all the time, rather than the Kohen Gadol doing the Poraduma, the Poraduma is entrusted to the number two Kohen, which is the Sgan Kohen, which in this case is Elozer. So therefore, when it says in the Satamoso, uh, when it says in Satamoso, Elozer Kohen, it just means not Elozer personally, but it means what Elozer represents, which is the number two Kohen. Others learn that all Poradumas can be done by the Kohen Gadol. 
In this particular case, there's a special mitzvah that should be given to Allah not to Aaron. Possibly because of the chayt or eagle that Aaron did. But in any case, Aaron was not supposed to do the poraduma and was specifically given to Elazar. Comes the, uh, the Ebenezer and says that's why Elazar here is the one that's telling us the details of the laws of poraduma because it says, We could midrashically, though, say that we could now draw a common thread from the three places. Moshe Rabbeinu got angry on Elazar and the Summer Bnei Aaron no Sarm Lamor and he criticizes them, to which we find that they didn't answer and Aaron answers in kind. Rashi comments, you would think with the Shilohoyo Belozul Hoshab that Elazar didn't know how to answer. Talmud Lomar, we see in our Pasha that Elazar knew how to answer and he was able to publicly make proclamations and give over mitzvahs. He was able to and he had no problem speaking. But over here out of modesty, he, he shvagged similar to the Vayidom Aaron. When Moshe was angry at Aaron, Vayidom Aaron, he shvai. And we know that Aaron was rewarded immediately with a mitzvah. We find that when Moshe tells Aaron, the Vayidom Aaron, Aaron was silent. In reward for Aaron's silence, Vayidabr Hashem al Aaron, Lamor Yain V'Sheikh Ra'al In merit of the fact that Aaron held himself back and controlled himself and didn't respond, didn't answer, Hashem rewards Aaron by giving Aaron a mitzvah specifically, and the mitzvah of of Shesui Yain was given to Aaron and to Aaron alone. Vaidabra Hashem al Aaron Lamor, that Hakadosh Baruch Hu spoke to Aaron alone. That was the merit of the Vaidom Aaron. Possibly we could then say the same thing over here. summer. Moshe Rabbeinu gets angry at Elazar, but Elazar also shvigs Vaidom. He's silent. Hashem rewards him, just like Aaron was rewarded for his silence. By being given a mitzvah specifically to him, Hakadosh Baruch Hu now rewards Allah for his silence. Then comes the mitzvah paraduma. says, Give it over to Allah. Give him his reward. Give him the mitzvah. Give him the mitzvah, and in some way let Allah be given the credit. Where do we see that credit actually come? Here's the third place. Here Moshe Rabbeinu again gets angry. Moshe Rabbeinu gets angry. Vayiktsov Moshe. Moshe becomes angry. All of a sudden he forgets the mitzvahs. Elazar to the rescue. This is the Chukas HaTorah. We could once say, homiletically, that Hashem said to Moshe by Pasha's part to give it over to me. Namely, it was given to me. Now is payback time. Now is when I have the opportunity to make it up and to say over the mitzvah. So therefore, by the Vayitz of Moshe al-Lazar, because of the, the fact that Elazar was silent and didn't answer, Hashem rewards him by Zos Chukas HaTorah saying, Now Elazar finally takes the credit that is due to him, and he announced payback time. Now is my opportunity. I'm being given over a mitzvah that I should be the one to announce it. One of the Tariag mitzvahs is being given through me that I have the opportunity. This goes back to the Zos Chukas HaTorah, where it says, In the merit of my silence when Moshe was angry at me the first time, now that he's angry the third time, I'm the one to fill in and to give the mitzvah in his stead. Although we've answered now the connection between the Porah Adum and Elazar, and his place over here as well as there, but we still have to understand, unless we go with the Sephoros Poshet Pshat, why this mitzvah of Hagolas Kalim is given the marquee, the, the title of Zos Chukas like Porah Aduma. What's the connection? The Chofetz Chaim in the Hagdoma Who's Likute Halochus on Kotchim says the following. 
He asked the following question. by We know Pora Aduma is the paradigm mitzvah that represents a chok that's without seichel, without reason. We don't understand it. The logic is not revealed to us. Pora Aduma is the model mitzvah, is the epitome of chok. Because we can't understand it. But the laws of Hagol of Kashring are the most logical mitzvahs of all. We know why you can't eat it. Because it, can, it, it absorbed treif. It absorbed treif into its walls. It could only release it when it's heated up to an equivalent degree. And tells us that's a logical thing. It's a very logical mitzvah. So the laws of Hagol's Kalim have nothing to do with Poraduma. Unlike Poraduma, which seems to be unreasonable and seems to be illogical, Hagol's Kalim is very logical and eminently reasonable. It's the only way that you could kasher a keli, is by heating it up and burning off the tray, or boiling it off. Either boil it off or burn it off. Libun, hagola, however it's done. But kabola kachpolta, that's the only way you're going to be able to release the tray from the absorb, from the absorption that it got absorbed into the walls. Why then introduce it with zos chukas hatorah when it seemingly is the opposite of paraduma? This is very logical, whereas paraduma seems to be totally illogical. Says the Chofetz Chaim, the words Zos Torah represent the entirety, the embodiment of the Torah, which is, in, which is embodied over here. What is the Torah all about? The Torah is about the purification of the human being. We know that we find two psukim, one pasuk in Yirmiya, Perichov Gimel, that compares the Torah to fire. Torah is compared to fire, it's fiery. We also know that it's compared to water. Come drink water, the waters of Torah. But Torah is also compared to the waters of a mikveh. Like Chazal say in the Sifri in Parshas Ekev, Nimshul Divrei Torah L'mayim. Torah is compared like water, just as water purifies. Ma'amayim, ma'alam esodam itumasa, just like water purifies a person of his impurities. Kach Divrei Torah, ma'alam esodam itumasa. Likewise, Torah acts like a mikveh to be metire the person from his tumah. Mikveh Yisrael Hashem. The last in Mishnah is in, in Mesechtas Yuma. So we know Torah is compared to a mikveh of water. The essence of the Torah, therefore, is the purification of man from his tumma, from his impurities. In a sense, this is one of the lessons of Par Aduma. The laws of Tumah and Tara, of purification from impurities, were only given to Klal Yisrael, not to Goyim. Goyim do not have the ability to go from a state of Tumah to a state of Torah. Only the Jewish people have. That's one of the lessons of Porah Duma. That the Torah, that was those Chukas Torah. this is the entire embodiment of the Torah. Odom ki The Torah is able to take a person from a state of impurity and purify him and make him Torah. Torah was only given to Klal Yisrael. Torah Bagoyim Al Tamin. Chokum Bagoyim Tamin. Torah Bagoyim Al Tamin. Torah was only given to Jews, not to Goyim. And therefore the ability that the Torah has, the unique segula of Torah, of purifying the person and raising him from a level of Tumut to the Torah, is unique to the Torah, which was uniquely given to Klai, so Goyim don't have it. And therefore, Zos Chukas HaTorah, the Porah Duma, embodies this concept, which is only given to the Jewish people, which is represented by the entirety of the Torah. Zos Chukas HaTorah. Extends the Chofetz Chaim the same lesson here. A person sins, and thereby the spirit of Tumah goes upon him. The Pesach in Yeches Kalam and Gimel says, Ki Our sins are upon us. How could we live? We're sinful beings. What hope is there for us? We've spent our life full of sins. What hope is there? 
No, you could do tshuva. And the proper tshuva and the best tshuva is Yasuk Mitzharis Hashem Shehim Mekorah Torah. Torah will purify you of your previous sins. Just like a person who's Tomei and he goes into a mikveh, when he comes out, he's completely purified, he's completely cleansed, he's Tahar. You learn Torah, it's like going into a mikveh, you could purify yourself of the impurities of the Tumah. But a person's going to say that's not a good comparison. Yes, if you touch Tumah and the Ruach HaTumah envelops you, then by going into a mikveh, it'll remove that, envel- uh, that enveloping Tumah that's upon you. But that's a very external, superficial kind of a Tumah. What about the Tumas HaNefesh, the sins that go into your heart, that becomes absorbed into your very being and becomes part of your very fiber of your beings, that it's absorbed into your heart. It's, it's, it's an absorption. It's a blia. It's dovuk. It's easy to go to the mikveh and to externally remove that Tumah which was external to begin with. But what about if I become a shtik Tumah? What if the Tumah becomes the very fiber of my being and I myself become a shtik chait, a shtik avera, a shtik Tumah? How do you purify that? Going into a mikveh is not going to help. Torah is fire. The koyach of limud ha-Torah, l'tzarif u'l'labinus adam, it's libun. It'll burn off the impurities. It'll be pilot mikir by as called b'liyus ha-isr shechadru All of these b'liyus, all these impurities that becomes part of you, it'll get burnt off. It'll be pilot from you. It'll get burnt off through Libun, through Hagola. It's going to go off like fire itself. Torah is Meshula Le'esh. Halaykai Dvorei Ka'esh Nu Mashem. Just like Esh is Melabin the Kli. Meyo Isr Shenev Lebo. Torah also helps L'tayr Olahachshir Nafshay Mikaychis Hatumah Shenev Lebo. This is the embodiment, this is what Torah represents, this is what Torah is all about. This is what the Torah was given to Moshe for. It depends on how much sin you have and how you connect to Torah. The parish of Hagolos Kalim therefore represents the embodiment of the entirety of the Torah, which is to purify the person, to kasher the person. That's what Poraduma represents, that's what Hagolos Kalim represents. It's fire and water. It's interesting, Chazal referred to two parts of the Torah. It refers to the halachic portions as fire, the agodic portions as water. The halachic portions is fire, it sharpens the person, you learn and you get heated up and you work up a sweat and you schwitz and you're fiery fiery words of the Torah and it sharpens the person sharpens his mind then you have the agodic portions the philosophical the, the parts that are inspirational that inspire the person like water it quenches your thirst Torah has both aspects it sharpens the person and it fires up the person it also quenches his thirst it purifies him it inspires him it makes him like water and like fire Torah is fire Torah is water but the purpose of both is the purification of the person sometimes you purify with fire Sometimes you purify with water. Sometimes you have to burn it off. Sometimes you have to boil it off. Sometimes you have to go into the mikveh to purify it. But that's what the essence of Poraduma represents, the Jewish capacity to be metahir from Tumah, the Jewish ability to go up from a state of impurity to a state of taro. That's what Poraduma represents. That's what Hagolos Kalim and the Kashering represents. The ability of Torah to burn off the impurities and to purify the person totally. That's why the Torah was given to us. This is the embodiment of the entirety of the Torah. Rav Moshe Feinstein and Drash Moshe says something very similar. 
This tells us the ability of tshuva to purify a person from the sins that he dirties himself with. This is the entirety of what the Torah is all about. A person should never give up hope when he sins. Don't give up hope. There is hope. There's purification. There's a hope for a person. You could sin, but there's hope for you. That a person should never give up hope even though he dirties himself with sins. He could clean up his act. But how? Here there's a difference. The way that you clean up the chatoim from tshuva depends on the way the sin enters you. The way you sin, that's the way you're going to have to purify yourself. It depends how you use it. If the sins were absorbed, through the taiva gedolah like fire, it was absorbed and it sticks to you like the absorption by great heat and passion and fire, then you're going to have to have the same kind of tshuva. You're going to have a passionate tshuva of fire to burn off the sins. If the sin became absorbed through a lesser degree of passion, it wasn't fiery, it was just hot, but not so fiery. It was with a lesser degree of time. It never really stuck to you. It never really became part of you because it was done with less passion, with less Yetzirah. A lesser tshuva is sufficient then. Then you could use a lesser tshuva, a lesser form of kashering. Says Rav Moshe, very interesting. This is the makor for the concept of what we call tshuva's hamishkal. Tshuva's hamishkal was something which is, was done in the Middle Ages, not nowadays. It was done that for the amount of passion and hanor that you got from the mitzvah, from the aver, that's how much tshuva and sigufim and yisurim you have to suffer to make up for it. It was tshuva's hamishkal, a balance. This is the source, says Rav Moshe. Nowadays we find another interesting thing, that when people want to accept the Torah and they cash in their kitchen, we say, oh, they've made it, they've arrived, they've become from. Nowadays the symbol of the Baal tshuva is the cashering of his kitchen. When they cash in the kitchen, that means they've become Baal tshuva. When you cash your kalim, when you cash your dishes, when you cash your kitchen, it means you've arrived, you've accepted the Torah, you're a true Baal tshuva, you're one of us. Cashering the, the, the kitchen. That's the way we see it nowadays, symbolically at least. But Rav Moshe says that we learn the concept of tshuvas hamishkal that we find in this form. It's learned out from this parsha. From this parsha, we see the idea of tshuvas hamishkal to suffer an equivalent amount to the amount that you enjoy. The way the avera enters with that enjoyment and passion, that's how much tshuva tshuvas hamishkal you're going to have to. Look.